and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Before we get to the show, let's get the pleasantries out of the way. First of all, our website. If you want more information about our little podcast, go to wearethecontrarians.com. That's where you'll find links to our old episodes, to our Patreon channel, and to our awesome Contrarians merch. You can show your support by buying a Contrarians mug or a pillow. I like the laptop bags myself. Second of all, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Or even go a step further and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Finally, if you want to reach out directly to us, that's what social media is for. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Contrarian Prime, or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Julio runs our official Twitter account at Contrarian Prime, but if you want to give me a piece of your mind or just want to banter about pro wrestling, you can follow me at Contrarian Alex. That's it. That's our intro. Now, time for the show. This is And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for Warrior, the big opening to our ninth year of podcasting. The cage door is locked, Julio. It's time to knuckle up, regardless if, if our shoulders separated or not. It's time to work out our issues with our fists. Is that what you're saying? Or work out our fucking traps. Tom Hardy in this movie. Good God, man. As if he needed to be hotter. But it's <laughs> Hello. <laughs> And welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined, as always, by my co-host, I guess not my opponent, my corner man. Well, it depends on the movie. Yeah, and I'm trying to think of how we could be partners in this. Neither of us are fighters. I think that's obvious. There's no Uh, way that I would train you on how to fight. No, but we could help train somebody for something, so we could be like part of a team. Oh, so so you're uh, like Frank Grillo, and I am... uh Am I Kevin Dunn? <laughs> no, 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 no. We're like Frank Grillo's, like uh, the guys who hold mitts for him. Oh, okay. Like gotcha. we, we don't actually like uh, instruct, but we're on the team somehow. We wear like the t- the affliction t shirts and carry the spit bucket and the towel and whatnot. Uh, we're there. We just <laughs> we're we're there. We're together, but we're not the the focus. We're not fighting. We're we're talking about fighting. Who's fighting? Uh, shit, I don't know. Who's someone that we champion constantly? Robert Pattinson's fighting. <laughs> Robert Pattinson. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. We don't know any real fighters, so Josh Gad is fighting. There, there you go. go. There you go. Or Kevin James. We because we were James. Both oh, champ- that's more appropriate. Champion. Here comes the boom. The original warrior that came out after Warrior, mind you. Well, you know, those, you know how it works in Hollywood. Those screenplays are doing the rounds for a while before they get produced. Oh, don't worry. Here Comes the Boom will come up more than once on this this episode. It almost has to. Yeah. So, I am Alex. He is Julio. We are here today to discuss the 2011, uh, not necessarily like a sensation with audiences, but definitely with critics. Ended up getting nominated for uh, an Oscar in the Best Supporting Actor category with Mr. Nick Nolte. One of those uh, Lifetime Achievement Awards. They're like, sure, why not? They were like, well, the artist is going to win everything, so we just need to kind of (laughs) sprinkle in some random things throughout. Because I remember (laughs) when I woke up that morning and read those nominations, it was kind of surprising that he got nominated for it. It It seemed kind of out of nowhere. He took it from John Goodman in The Artist. How much is John Goodman in that movie? I don't even remember. I know he's at the end. (laughs) That's what I remember. He cashes a check, so you know he's there. He was pitted against 
Max von Sydow and Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. Jonah Hill and Moneyball, another movie that we've done. Oh, Kenneth, God. <laughs> Kenneth Branagh in My Week with Marilyn. And um, Christopher Plummer, of course, who won for Beginners. But yeah, that was the, the only nomination for Warrior, but still kind of surprising and uh, goes to speak to kind of the impact that it had at the time. Well, so America likes their old white guys searching for redemption. Because that's literally what Max von Sydow is doing. <laughs> Extremely loud and incredibly close. But we're not here to talk about that movie. <laughs> we're we're here to yet, take, Alex. take the trip to the slums of uh, Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, depending on what part of the movie it is. And then to the grand beaches of Atlantic City, the the destination uh, of America. You know, there's Disneyland and then there's fucking Atlantic City. Everything is legal in New Jersey. So much so that the beaches are completely abandoned at night. So that the only two people <laughs> walking on it are the estranged, estranged brothers that can cross paths once more. <laughs> Echoes of without saying goodbye. Deserted Machu Picchu, deserted beaches in Atlantic City. That's right. <laughs> All the power of filmmaking. That's what we call it. All right. So to any new listeners with the sport of mixed martial arts, you never know. Coming off a big card this past weekend and ramping up into the end of the year where they pull out some of their bigger title fights. Uh, any new listeners, welcome. To all our returning listeners and Tom Hardy fans alike, give us a moment here while we explain what it is we do here on The Contrarians. This will be uh, a little different from uh, This Means War. Yes. Is that the only other Tom Hardy movie we've done? I think so. Man, we're getting up there. We're close to like <laughs> 200 numeric episodes starting to get, uh, we're on the climb to 200. So, and these are starting to, the early ones kind of fade into the back of my mind, but whatever the case. Since episode one, since uh, the nightmare before Christmas, what it is we do here on The Contrarians is we rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. Find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times known as certified fresh. Uh, And what we'll do with that movie is um, call out maybe some of the poor aspects of it, some overrated acting, poor direction, bad script, bad dialogue, bad score. Uh, some of these things that, you know, these critics might have missed or just intentionally, you know, were willfully blind to like that cop in the town that sees the bank robbery going down and just kind of turns away like he didn't see a thing. <laughs> Conversely, we'll find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is uh, rotten, usually about 30 percent and below one of those nasty green splotches. And as you could guess, we'll make a case for that film's positive merit, be it underrated acting, bold storytelling choices, good soundtrack. Uh, cinematography, whatever we can find to, to make it sound good. Uh, do this for two reasons. Number one, in a sense to say that the shit is subjective. You can be as over the moon about something as you want to be or as cynical about something as you want to be if you set your mind to it. And also, uh, as Hulu and I always discuss, those Rotten Tomatoes scores don't always tell the whole story about what you're watching. And it's not like Rotten Tomatoes goes out of their way to establish that or explain it. 84% for Warrior so we usually, I think in the past, we've stuck 80, 85% and above, but it still does have that beautiful IP, that trademarked logo, the certified fresh sticker right next to it. So it falls well in line. So for this first half of the podcast, what we call Contrarian's Corner, we'll be doing just as I explained and uh, cutting Warrior down to size a little bit, cutting it off at the calves because Tom Hardy's are too beautiful. Uh, if <laughs> Julio, if listeners want to know how we really feel about the movie we're discussing, the movie du jour, in this case being Gavin O'Connor's Warrior, they just have to listen to the second half, part two. That's correct. Part two, the aptly titled Real Talk. That's where we tell you how we really feel. Uh, that's where you will find out if Alex's fandom when it comes to MMA 
got in the way of him enjoying this movie or enhanced the experience. We've had that situation before. You know, your love for baseball in Moneyball. Your love for basketball in Semi-Pro. Here, your love for MMA and Warrior. I don't know. How will that pan out? Uh, as for me, well, you know, I'm not much into uh, combat sports. I'm more about the parties around combat sports that Alex <laughs> throws. So... How would this go? No, I like Jennifer Morrison. I think she's uh, very charismatic. So there's that. But if you want to find out exactly what we thought of the movie, no gimmick, uh, just check out Real Talk. And Alex, do you want to feel really silly? Um, Basically, a year ago, we started year eight of The Contrarians tackling Mad Max Fury Road, a bona fide Tom Hardy vehicle. Tommy Hard, man. I think we got to make that a tradition now. Every year we start with that. So what's what's next? Bronson for year 10? Ooh, that'd be good. Bronson, Rock and Rolla. Uh, um, Inception, maybe? Because I remember that was kind of when my love affair with him started. We got plenty of options. The Drop. There's uh, two Venom movies. I think I've told this story on the podcast before, but I'll tell it again. This was the first Tom Hardy movie that my dad saw. And he refused to believe me that he was an English fellow. He just flat out refused to believe that an English dude could nail that Pittsburgh white trash so well as he does that East Coast thug. Uh, And then I was like, you ready to have your mind blown? The other guy is Australian. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have the heart to tell him that Nick Nolte is Irish? It's like Nick Nolte's Chinese. Uh, <laughs> but that's that's always fun. I, that's kind of one of the things we always joke about when this movie comes up. So, Tom Hardy, welcome back. Mixed Martial Arts, welcome back. Uh, we got Joel Edgerton, Nick Nolte, Frank Grillo, Kevin Dunn making his triumphant return here. Even a wild Noah Emmerich appears at one point. The <laughs> The whole squad's here, and we have an absolute slew of mixed martial arts stars and legends that um, I will be breaking down as they come on screen. So, Julio, I hope you're also prepared to learn some things this evening. Always. All right. Warrior, once again, 84% on Rotten Tomatoes, certified fresh. As I said, when it came out, you know, its box office return was fairly disappointing, $23 million to a $25 million budget. But I do remember, I mean, the Academy was there, and the critics were pretty gung-ho about this one. Julio, what were you able to go through and pick out and choose to present to us for the quotes tonight? We're going to start with Blake Howard from 2UE, that movie show, who says, Warrior is an ode to valor-ruined men in war, in peace, in the octagon. It's an ode, Alex. It's not an octagon. (laughs) It's not. UFC would have sued them. It's not an octagon. (laughs) (laughs) Is it a... Fuck. What do you call it if it has nine sides? Nine sides and one front grillo. Is it a dodecagon if it's nine? I I think legitimately it was a hexagon that the cage was shaped as. Boo. No, it was something different. I, I don't know, but I know it it's not an octagon. I know it's not an octagon because people have tried to use that word to describe mixed martial arts before, and the UFC sues them. Or if, like, God forbid, I think like a oh some amateur, you know, in a strip club parking lot uh, fight league had their cage shaped like an octagon, and they got their show shut down, or like you know, the cease and desist because UFC has the trademark on that. They're not golden arches. They're arches made of gold. <laughs> Uh, next, Roger Moore from the Tribune News Service says, a straight genre picture, but the best MMA movie ever. 
Uh, well, we'll save that for real talk because that to there's be fair, a, like you said, here comes the boom hadn't been made yet. So maybe at the time. I don't know if you remember, but there was like when MMA was becoming mainstream, it still had this sense of danger about it. And that was from like um, 07 to 2011, 2012 ish. And so there were a slew of like MMA movies that either were in theater or straight to video or straight to Redbox back in those days releases. So we'll talk a little bit more about that in the, the second half. But I could definitely see someone believing that. This was the best one until <laughs> Roger Here Comes the Boom came out. Yeah. Uh, Rob Humanick from Sweet101.com says, A welcome throwback to big studio movies with heart, mind, and blood running through their veins. Yeah. Did this make you feel like you were watching, I don't know, Casablanca? <laughs> no, big but it made me... your pictures. It made me feel like, I, I mean, Lionsgate. But it definitely made me feel like I was watching... Um, like a modern interpretation of Rocky. Pooh. <laughs> Enough said. Minus the date rape aspect. Yep. And speaking of Rocky, we're going to finish with David Nusser from Real Film Reviews, who says, an instant classic that manages to surpass even the original Rocky in terms of effectiveness. Putting it all out there, David. That is, that's a pretty big matzo ball, as Jerry Seinfeld would say. <laughs> David, don't care. He's all in on the Edgerton, or maybe on the Bane. I don't know. Who was the the get here? Tom Hardy had top billing. So was Hardy already a star? I mean, Inception? Inception and Tinker Bronson? Taylor Soldier Spy was what he was writing into this off of. Okay. Let's be honest. I think that there's still a lot of people who don't know who Joel Edgerton is. You like mean he today? Just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he just got cast on that uh, Obi-Wan show for... Disney Plus, and I I think that that most people are just now finding out that this dude is an actor. Well, he played um, he was in the Star Wars movies, the most yeah, recent well, trilogy. He's Uncle Owen in, in yeah, the yeah, yeah, Obi Wan yeah. show. Yeah, I remembered. Fuck, I don't remember who I watched it with. I was like, hey, it's Joel Edgerton, and someone's like, who? And I was like, yeah, that's <laughs> that says it all right there. Uh, and of course, Tom Hardy leverages the success of Warrior to make this means war the following year. Uh, as well as The Dark Knight Rises. I feel like he had to have shot this around the same time as The Dark Knight just because of how fucking huge he was. Um, <laughs> Pro rule number one, this dude can break Batman's back, but he can't beat Joel Edgerton. Well, there's a lot more to it than that. I mean, like... <laughs> he was not related to Batman? That, and, you know, Bane didn't have the, all the emotional baggage that uh, Tommy Reardon had. So you found God, huh? That's awesome. Mom kept calling out for him, but he wasn't around. I guess Jesus was down at the mills for giving all the drugs, huh? Uh, but it was September 9th of 2011 uh, when Warrior was released in the theaters. Gavin O'Connor, the director, also one of the writers, coming in off of Comfortably Numb from 1995, Tumbleweeds of 1999, Miracle, the hockey film, uh, 2004, and Pride and Glory, an Ed Norton, Colin Farrell film from 2008. Julio, are you familiar with that? I think I remember the poster. Well, there you go. <laughs> I know Miracle. There was oh, a yeah. time. There was a time in American history where everybody would just quote whatever Kurt Russell speech, you know, is given in the climatic moment in Miracle. I think. I mean, it's you know before very, we were divided as a nation. Yeah. Uh, 2004 was still 
close <laughs> enough to 9-11 that people were just like, America! Uh, hockey! Hockey! I think that's an important detail, though, because Miracle is one of those extremely cliche-ridden sports films. So knowing that coming into Warrior here, when also it's just a little Home bit brand. of a di- different time. It's based in modern time, and yeah, mixed martial arts, as I said, was pretty much vetted mainstream in 2011 like espn was covering it they were on fox with uh, some regular specials and you know people like john jones and um some of their other champions at the time were really starting to break through this would have been fairly close to when they brought in female fighters and ronda rousey obviously became a household name for a moment in time before the entourage movie um, a moment for rebuttal, though. Did you just say this is this is based on on modern times, like in, on the here and now? Because Nick Nolte is listening to his tapes, like tapes, uh, on a Walkman. Well, it's based in modern time, as in 2011. But it's okay. We were past Walkmans by then. He's an old drunk. What do you want from him? <laughs> that's. A, I think that's the point. Is like, well, yeah, we'll just get right into it. Tommy's the first character we see. It's not far. Behind, we see uh, an old, broken-down Nick Nolte, who is uh, sober now, we learn. He has his old car and his old home and, like, his fucking tube TV. And the color tone of everything is very muted. And you just know, I mean, 30 seconds into this, Julio, once you see the way things are framed and shot and the way our characters speak to each other, you just know this is going to be depressing as fuck. Yes, but also... It can't be just me, Alex. And maybe it's just because uh, one of my most memorable Nick Nolte exposures had to do with us watching the 248 Hours movies back to back. But mm-hmm. I see Nick Nolte and I'm just – the countdown starts inside my brain just waiting to see when he's going to say something racist. Was that your your experience here? You see him coming I mean, in and it's like, oh, fuck. Old white dude. He's going to say something inappropriate. An old Irish white dude. <laughs> to make it worse. It'll be inappropriate and it'll make me laugh. Yeah, it had been a while since I'd taken notes from Nick Nolte. So that was kind of like when we did 48 hours, I'd be like, oh, God, how am I going to talk about this? So <laughs> first I was kind of nervous. Tom Hardy, Tom Reardon, Tom Collin, Conlin, excuse me, is he... He's a man of many names in this. He's a Marine who hasn't seen his father in quite some time, and he shows up, and you know he wants to have a belt with the old man, as he says, and we learn again that Nick Nolte, Patty Conlon, or Pop, as his two sons in the film call him, is a recovering alcoholic. He's been sober almost a thousand days. Tom Hardy tells him, that's great, but it doesn't change anything. You know, he used to beat my mom when I was a kid, and you know, you, you ran out on us, or we had to run out on you to get away to be safe, and you ruined my life, and mom's dead, and he just puts this immediate guilt trip on him. Going through the pictures in his home, he sees the picture of who we find out is his brother, Brendan, who has his own family in Philadelphia, and they, they being in Pittsburgh. It's not a fun opening scene for a movie that <laughs> comes to just rely overly on sports cliches and happy endings. It's not the mood you want to be put in because like Tom Hardy's in the middle of just motherfucking his dad and he passes out because he's so drunk. <laughs> We get the inverse, the yin to the yang here. We go from muted colors to sunny day, bright sunshine, colors everywhere as we are introduced to, as I mentioned, Brendan, who's played by Joel Edgerton. Brendan Conlon, son of uh, Patty Conlon, brother to Tommy Reardon. Uh, And he has a nice family. He has two daughters 
And who's this Candice LeRae-looking woman? <laughs> uh, yeah, so let's talk about Jennifer Morrison. She is this, uh, this movie, Salma Hayek, except... Unlike Salma Hayek, they don't really give her anything to do other than just be there, be mad that her husband is a fighter, can defend himself. And she's then a, the a waitress over. or a bartender. We get a shot of her in a short skirt and she gets shamed for the clothes that she's wearing. Yeah, she basically has the standard female story arc of any sports movie where she's against it. And then by the end, she just accepts everything. She's like, oh, Which, I, I was wrong. You're right. <laughs> but see, that's what made Here Comes the Boom so unique so so refreshing because Salma Hayek was she got on board very quickly mm-hmm. uh, and then she was just actually helping Kevin James pop his shoulder back on or whatever she does on, on their first date it's I wanted more I how cool would it have been if Jennifer Morrison had actually been allowed to to be part of the fun <laughs> instead of being on the sidelines complaining and nagging I just wanted to see a ringside from the beginning arguing with Frank Grillo about strategy so what we learn about Brendan and his wife, Tess, and their situation is they, they need money. Uh, one of the sad undercurrents of this movie, one of the kind of buried themes is don't get sick in America because we find out that no his, daughter, yeah, his daughter had an issue with her heart and it's pretty much bankrupted their family. It's actually really fucking depressing. Uh, but, you know, they have to work three jobs between the two of them. And they're still looking at foreclosure down the road. But Brendan's main calling, his uh, full-time job, his shoot job, as we say, is he's a high school physics teacher. And we just get like one scene of him teaching, but he's the cool teacher. You know, he he's the teacher all the kids like. And um, just the way he talks to them, he's just one of them, you know. And it's Did you think of uh, Mark Wahlberg in The Happening? Yeah. And then I also thought of... Well, Kevin James has lost his passion for teaching in that movie, and then it yeah. comes back to him. So it's a little bit different here. You can tell he loves his job, but it's just uh, – that's another thing. It, it tells you uh, teachers don't get paid shit. So <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, the real villain in this movie, and one of the reasons why it's so dissatisfying to watch. Uh, America? The real villain, uh, America, but personified in uh, what I call Mortgage Man, played by Noah Emmerich in one scene. and. I needed him to get punched at the end. That's how this movie should have ended. I don't care how either getting punched or just uh, Joel Edgerton walking into the bank and just dumping a bag of cash on his desk. Yeah, that seems a little bit down the road, but it's it's worth bringing up now because what what this ties into is everyone's fucking broke in this movie. But Joel Edgerton (laughs) goes, uh, Brendan goes to the you know his advisor, his um, consultant. I'm trying to think of the the word they used. Um, This guy. This, the guy, you know, <laughs> every bank has one. The guy, yeah. When Brendan meets with the financial advisor for the family, Noah Emmerich, he's just one of those slimy fucking bank people that, you know, when Brendan's like, "You advise us to do so," he's like, "I presented you with your options." It's like I, I hate that shit, dude. And dude, the worst part is when uh, Brendan says, because he's like, you know, you took the refinancing and you took a, a good amount of money then, and then. Joel Edgerton goes like, yes, and I told you where that went to my daughter's medical bills. And then uh, Noah Emmerich goes like, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, she had the flu or whatever. And, and Edgerton he's goes like, like, oh, yeah, that problem with her kidneys. And he's like, her heart. Her heart. And then Noah Emmerich goes like, well, you know, so many stories. <laughs> Such a shitty thing to say. But also, he's basically telling him, I hear this all the time. 
I mean, Noel Emmerich is a cool guy and he he's a good actor and he plays it well, but we needed we needed some sort of resolution. It's like at the end of Superman 2 when the movie's not over until Clark Kent walks back into that bar and beats the shit out of the hillbilly that beat him up earlier. He's not Lex Luthor, he's not General Zod, but you needed that moment so that we could come full circle. Uh, I don't really care about anybody else that Joel Edgerton beats up in this movie. I want him to beat up Noah Emmerich. It's a, an unfortunate and angering scene, but that's the the problem there is, that, you know, they're at an impasse. He doesn't have any fucking money. And so what he does on the side, he tells his wife he's uh, bouncing at a bar or strip club. And actually, he's going and taking these amateur MMA fights, strip club parking lots, you know, just like indie wrestling. Only difference is it's real. Does and, this happen, Alex? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not an invention of the movie. This happens in America. Just people beating each other up in parking lots. I mean, the movie takes many liberties with the sport of MMA and the idea of like what would be sanctioned, what's not. But the amateur fights, it's just that. You can find those. I've been to a few amateur boxing events. You can find amateur fights, you know, in Austin if you try hard enough. Uh, you know, they're not going to be at the Moody Center or any place nice, but just like this. It's... <laughs> and they're just like that. It's real dangerous, real seedy, real fucking, you know, toughest guy at the bar type badasses. They're not... What you watched a little bit of at my house the other night, it's not like that. <laughs> it's not professional fighting. <laughs> it's not fighting. classy stuff like that. I- exactly. <laughs> so that's what he's got going on. He fights Meanwhile, back in the Berg, as Nick Nolte refers to it at one point, Tommy Reardon's looking for a local gym. He ends up just finding what's become now an MMA gym that is like the home of the local badass, Pete Mad Dog Grimes, played by Eric Apple, a legitimate MMA fighter. Um, watched him fight live at Cedar Park once. Oh. Um, yeah. Yeah. He is was, he a bad uh, guy in real life? I don't remember. That was one of the events I covered as media, so I still have like the the press kit from it. I knew I recognized his name, so that's uh, you were, where you I knew were being it from. professional. You, you didn't want to assign labels. <laughs> yeah, I was I was being unbiased. I was just you know <laughs> journalistic integrity and all that. Uh, but they have the TV on MMA Live. They had John Anik on there. I was like, hey, it's John Anik, and what a rise that guy's had. He's now the lead announcer for the Ultimate Fighting Championship. But on this real show, they have the fictional character of J.J. Riley, played by the director Gavin O'Connor, who is the the head of a company named Sparta that's going to run a weekend-long Grand Prix. Sparta uh, not even trying really hard to rip off the name Bellator, which is a MMA promotion. <laughs> um, he's joined, of course, by the tap-out crew of Punk Ass and Skyscrape, which, despite how they look, Julio, those were very much real members of the MMA community, not wearing costumes or anything. <laughs> so, let's let's get it out of the way. Gavin O'Connor, is he pulling a Shyamalan here? I mean, he doesn't... Does he save the... I guess he does save the day, because he puts up $5 million for an MMA purse, which no one's ever done. So, maybe he is making himself the hero. <laughs> He still really seems slimy. He had like he nails that promoter really well because he looks kind of like a douchebag. His mannerisms and stuff. He seems like he could just be a real slimy businessman. But to your point, I didn't realize that until I was looking through. I was like, this guy doesn't look familiar to me. I was like, that would be why I haven't seen him act anything else. It's the director. It's like he couldn't have just gotten someone else to do it. He should have gotten like a really fat bald white guy just to make fun of Dana White. <laughs> 
Now, the other way that he would pull a Shyamalan is if he does this in every movie. So is he in Miracle? I'm going to have to watch Miracle and find out. He's Kurt Russell's uh, second. <laughs> All the behind shots of Kurt Russell. Is... He is the Miracle. So he's at this MMA gym training and the local bad boy there, Mad Dog, is just like, you know, being a real shithead and knocking out his training partners. And so, you know, lo and behold, Tommy ends up stepping in, just flatlines Mad Dog right away. And this video of it goes viral. Uh, that's not what you're supposed to do, Julio. You know, you don't go to the knockout in sparring like that. It's uh, that's pretty dangerous. And typically those guys would be wearing headgear. Is it dangerous because you could kill the other person? Well, it's dangerous because it softens their head. You can't just get knocked out all the time. That's there's a famous training camp in Brazil named Shootbox that like the legends always were. They went to the knockout and training camp and it like sharpened them temporarily. But then you look at guys like Vanderlei Silva and Shogun Hua, who at the tail end of their careers is just like, Jesus Christ, man. So just to make sure I got it right, it's not good to soften their heads when you're training, but it's okay to soften their heads when you're fighting in the cage. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> you All got right. it good <laughs> so with this knockout in sparring here the owner of the gym and mad dog's uh, manager wants to know more about tommy goes and talks to patty patty's like you gotta talk to tommy i can't speak for him he, you know he put his name on the application or he put this address on the application that type of thing and what it leads to is tommy getting a shot in this tournament this sparta deal and he asks his dad pop patty to train him and we learn just from a few like uh, background sound bites that Patty was the one who trained Tommy when he was younger, be it wrestling or, you know, whatever he was doing at the time. And definitely the way they sell it is like this Marv Marinovich type thing where he treated him like an experiment and, you know, all discipline, you know, no desire, all focus, that type of thing. Tommy realizes this and asks Patty to train him again. He's like, you know, no one ever trained me like you, that type of thing. But this doesn't mean anything. You know, you and I are not friends. Did it's I miss this- the, the part in the two hours and 20 minutes of this movie where we were shown what was so special about Nick Nolte as a trainer? Because we, I, I get what Frank Grillo <laughs> Does you know he's he driving his, behind his a Tommy with his car saying push it let's go I guess yeah they never saw anything uh, you know another movie that came to mind that's fairly recent you know we did Grudge Match and there you could see why Alan Arkin was the the trainer that Stallone needed right they had they had a report for one <laughs> they cared for each other but also he could talk to him straight he could like set him straight and help him make sense of life and then on top of that he had his own style of training i don't see anything in, in this relationship tom hardy clearly hates nick nolte uh, and and nolte every time that he tries to communicate with hardy it gets shut down what is going on how is this making him a better fighter why wouldn't he just take anybody else to train him somebody it doesn't even have to be somebody he respects but at least somebody he doesn't hate I think that even though the movie takes two hours and 20 minutes to tell its story, it leaves us hanging when it comes to this relationship. Like, we know why it doesn't work, but I want to know why it works. Like, what is it that makes it worth it? Is there a director's cut somewhere? We don't even get a shot of, like, Nick Nolte holding pads at any point. Man, he wouldn't. Like, yeah, (laughs) he wouldn't survive one of Hardy's punches. I'm not doing that shit. And when he's watching Brendan later, like actually fighting in Sparta, he's not even giving technical advice. He's just like, get up, Brendan, get up. He's yelling (laughs) at the TV like someone at the bar watching it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But he tells Tom Hardy he's got to clean up if he's going to train him. 
He's like, no more booze, and you got to get rid of those pills you have. So Tom Hardy hands him over two bottles of pills, and uh, Nick Nolte said, you sounded like a goddamn maraca coming through the door. <laughs> and so he wants all the pills that he has, and he takes them from him. He gives them over. So the training begins on that end. The school becomes aware of Brendan Conlon's, Joel Egerton's exploits, his fighting for additional money. He doesn't try to leverage it at all. He doesn't say, pay me more. Um <laughs> I'll kick your ass. But the students become aware of it as well. And there's a great, 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 like, oh, this is what the audience wants to hear because they don't know where one of the kids goes, mixed martial arts. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> and then another kid's just like MMA, you know, blending all the fighting styles or something. And looks at the camera and winks. Yes. So this uh, is where we uh, where we're introduced to uh, Kevin Dunn. You know what the problem with Kevin Dunn is here? That he's playing the same There's not enough role. of them. Well, yes, and that's because his character, the role that his character plays, is basically split between him and Jennifer Morrison. They're both playing the same type of character. They're people that oppose what Joel Edgerton is doing on the surface, but underneath, they think it's kind of cool. That You know you know that their arc is going to be that they oppose it, but then by the end of the movie, they're going to be cheering him on. Well, you don't need two characters to do that. <laughs> that's, that's a damn shame. You could have just... Gotten rid of one of the characters. Man, wouldn't it have been more interesting if uh, Joel Edgerton had been uh, a single father? Now you're really putting the pressure on. And Jennifer Morrison can play the principal. And Kevin Dunn can just go do something else. He's Kevin Dunn. He'll be all right. Yeah. Uh, he does have one of the best parts here, though. Um, Brendan explains to him, you know, I, I was a fighter before I became a teacher. Because they have to talk to the superintendent. Is that guy has been at a school since nine eleven? But you know, Kevin Dunn. Before they go to speak to the superintendent, he has you know the he has to know. So before he opens the door, he turns around to Joel Edgerton and he goes, "UFC," uh, and <laughs> Edgerton just kind of like nods and he son of a bitch. And <laughs> <laughs> Didn't know he had it in him. Would it be uh, cool though if Jennifer Morrison had been the one playing that scene? She could have done it. You know, the same thing. She's she's playing the hard-ass principal, and then she gets that moment where she... Not only does she nod in, in surprise, but also kind of looks him up and down. Sees him but then, like, they... So he's a single father, and then they end up together in the end. Yes, of course. Okay, okay. He has the Adrian moment at the end. There you go. So he gets suspended without pay, so he needs to fight at this point. Uh, back in the world of Tommy and Pop, their training's off to a tumultuous beginning. Uh, we get a terrible towel sighting in the background for our Steelers fans and also just to establish to the audience, this is in Pittsburgh, in case you didn't remember. <laughs> we learn that some shit's up with Tommy and the military. Uh, we don't quite know yet, but that clip of him goes viral and somewhere you know, over in the Middle East, a guy sees that and compares it to this footage he has on a handheld video camera of a rescue being perpetrated. And More tapes. Hey, v, you need to see the tape. What tape? Um, what tape? The tape! It looks to be Tom Hardy that, you know, saved a, a tank full of men in battle. During that, though, when they're watching the YouTube clip and the guy's like, who's Mad Dog Grimes? The other guy gets mad at him. I'm like, oh, duh. Like that, I was like, oh, man, I would have been that guy in college if someone was like, who's Chuck Liddell? <laughs> you don't know. This is uh, the most jarring moment in the movie, though. 
because you, I mean, we're maybe like an hour in. You were not expecting us to. It is a hard left. <laughs> yes, right. Like, what the fuck happened? What are we watching? Is it a flashback from when Tom Hardy was a marine? Uh, it's because really they weird. mentioned he was in the service, but like the direction it goes is just like what. It has a really weird payoff, too. Like, I don't know. You could have removed this angle from the movie, and it would have been fine. It all plays exactly the same. You get <laughs> the, the, the movie same had to be two and a half hours, though. That was <laughs> yes. what Lionsgate told Gavin O'Connor. I have I have three requisites. One, you cast Nick Nolte. Two, has to be two and a half hours. Three, a military subplot. That's Go. all I ask. All I ask. Then you can cast this Joel Edgerton guy, whoever he is. The story continues to unravel, though, as he calls. Uh, we see Tommy calling um, a young lady. I think it said in El Paso, Texas. Uh, I, I'm blanking on her name, but she's uh, at this point a single mother, and he keeps asking her. They refer to uh, someone named Manny, and he says, "You know, I'm going to send you money." And you know, then the reveal of Tom Hardy and this Manny character uh, overseas fighting together. So there's definitely a big cloud hanging over that we're trying to figure out what it is did you think at any point that uh, tom hardy had been responsible for his death yeah of course that's i thought that was kind of the thing of like it has to be the worst case scenario but she Uh she seemed too happy to hear from him to for that to be the case yeah but then she was like really apologetic like you don't need to worry about it anything like that i mean it got not him directly but it in the end comes out that's kind of what happened their own guys. He escaped. It, it he was, was the only America. one. As we've established, America is the bad guy. <laughs> the real enemy here. It's probably Noah Emmerich pushing the button there. <laughs> Jesus. Nick Nolte decides to ambush Brendan. Pop shows up at Brendan's house in Philadelphia, and he's quickly accosted. You know, you can only speak to me over the phone or through the mail. I can't remember if it's this scene or the relapse scene they use for Nick Nolte's Oscar clip, but I, I'm pretty sure it was one of the two. And, you know, he's just asking for forgiveness and, uh, you know, I want to see my granddaughters and Tommy's back. And rightly, uh, Egerton is upset, angry, sad all at once. It's um, it goes on for quite a while, though. It seems like it could have been pulled off in like 90 seconds. He's mostly upset because he can tell that no matter what he does in this scene, Nick Nolte is the one that's going to get the accolades because he's playing (laughs) the old drunk. Edgerton is just playing the boring, responsible dad. And he's like an old schlub. Like he, you know, he's what probably mid 30s, early 40s. And he comes back from like a night of fighting. He's like limping out of the car. And then, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Nick Nolte kind of shuffles, like kind of, you know, jogs up and takes his hat off and slicks his hair back. He's like, hey, son. Remember me? <laughs> You're right. Edgerton's not even playing the badass. The badass is, is Tom Hardy. So Edgerton's just, he gets saddled with the role of the relatable guy. He goes in and his daughter asks, who's that? He said, oh, just some nice old man. And then Nick Nolte's left out in the street like a dog or a cat. It's very sad. He's a straight man. He's still man. talking. As they close the door, he's still talking. Oh, dude, it's, it's heartbreaking because he... Just sees like his granddaughters and he's like, oh, my God, she's so big and no one's listening to him. Just like, go away, old man. Gavin O'Connor rubbing his hands behind the camera. (laughs) We get a montage, a big one of the training. It's a lot of Tom Hardy running and hitting the bags. And Joel Egerton, who at this point has convinced uh, Frank Campana, Frank Campana, Campania, Frank Grillo shows up. He's (laughs) playing Frank. He's uh, Brendan's previous trainer, 
And Brennan shows up and explains the situation. He's like, I need someone to train me so I can get these fights to make money. So he says, okay, I'll train you. So we get montages. You know, at this point, Tommy's already in the Sparta tournament. Uh, the montage consists of, you know, we get some clips of uh, Brendan at some local fights. There's one of him jumping guard that I laughed at. A lot of <laughs> Tommy running as Nick Nolte, as I mentioned, in a car behind him, just like, push, excel, etc. <laughs> There is a Frank Grillo also. It's not that Frank Grillo is a much better trainer, to be honest. I mean, he just has a style because he he plays classical music. The uh, I guess when this movie came out, uh, Beethoven's Ode to Joy was all the rage, uh, the charts. So they decided to just put it in for every time. Not that, call me maybe Ode to Joy. <laughs> Ode to Joy. That's at least for one week. It was it was number one on Spotify's lists. I mean, Frank Grillo is not much different. Besides that, it's just he says three things. He says. Uh, get off the fence, move out of the way, and push your hip down. Th- those are like the three tenets of MMA fighting, according to Frank Grillo. Uh, if there's any more, they cut them out of the movie. <laughs> what I mean, is so it's... special about Frank Grillo as a trainer, other than uh, his crossbones in the MCU? He's better than Phil Baroni when he cornered Mark Coleman when Coleman fought Shogun Hua. Phil Baroni's advice, he was screaming, Fuck him up, Mark! Fuck him up. <laughs> this is a UFC fight. And this <laughs> idiot is yelling that shit. Soft in his head. <laughs> there you go. Make it so he can't hold a pencil anymore. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> During this montage, we get more clips from MMA Live uh, hyping the upcoming Sparta tournament. Uh, cameos from UFC legends. We get Rashad Evans, the winner of the Ultimate Fighter Season 2 and former light heavyweight champion of the Ultimate Fighting Championship. And Stefan Bonner as well. They're there on like the panel to discuss it. Stefan Bonner, uh, one half of the most important MMA fight of all time, um, at least from the perspective of America, when he fought Forrest Griffin. In the finale of the first Ultimate Fighter, it's not <laughs> dramatic or hyperbolic to say the UFC would not have succeeded if that fight didn't succeed. It way over delivered and the ratings they pulled in were massive and oh, everything aligned and went well for the UFC after that. Did it end with the two fighters hugging each other and saying oh, they yeah. loved each other? I don't know if they said that, but I mean, it's it's still one of those fights that it's just like this is wild. It's the type of thing you can't prepare for and it's the type of thing that you can't that not everyone will give you. They really just they went out there and they're like, "Well, this is why I'm here. I'm going to leave everything that I have out there." But yeah, Stefan Bonner, Rashad Evans have cameos. They're talking about the fictional fights coming up, uh, the fictional fighters. During this montage, we see that the star pupil of uh Frank Campana I think his name was like Marcus Marcus Santos, who is played by legitimate fighter Juan Carnero, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu ace who fought in the UFC many moons ago. He gets injured. Looks like they're running. He gets injured and hurts his knee somehow. Um, what a through- <laughs> Yeah, for real. Uh, you should be like TJ Dillashaw, even though you know your shoulder's separated going in, just still fight and then get the shit beat out of you. He gets injured. Joel Edgerton, using his puppy dog eyes, convinces Frank Grillo. <laughs> That let me replace this guy. So, you know, he's going to put this old man in this tournament full of fucking killers. So, but, so this is where it becomes a fantasy movie. Up till now, I could kind of sort of buy it. But here, it just, it would never happen, right? 
Yeah, and the concept of the Grand Prix doesn't really exist in America anymore because the way these fights are run by athletic commissions. So number one, to your point, most athletic commissions wouldn't sanction this school teacher to fight these fucking killers they have lined up. (laughs) But there was also an athletic commission that sanctioned CM Punk to fight, so who knows? Uh, (laughs) Well, CM Punk is younger. And more charismatic than Joel Edgerton. So I can buy uh, it. And two, the Grand Prix, while I love it, the premier Japanese mixed martial arts organization Pride in the early 2000s would run Grand Prix. And that's, you know, that's what the original UFC was, was one night tournaments. And I think that's, I, I'm a sucker for tournaments, both in wrestling and MMA. So I, I love that idea. But because of the way this is run, you have to go through a physical when you fight and then a physical after you fight. And depending on how the, like how many shots you take or if like your thumb's broken, the athletic commission will assign you like a mandatory suspension. If you get knocked out, I think it's like a mandatory at least like 60 or 90 days before you can spar again. It's something like that. So this is the technical breakdown for you all, letting you know why a Grand Prix doesn't really work or doesn't happen anymore in American mixed martial arts. So, yes, to your point. This is where it becomes a fantasy, and f- far more so with some of the moves these guys pull off in these fights that are coming up. <laughs> but yeah, it's they would submit Brennan Collin to fight, and they'd be like, "No, <laughs> we got this big Russian bear over here who hasn't lost a fight in you know thirty professional fights. He can't fight him." In two hours and 20 minutes, Gavin O'Connor couldn't find five minutes for a press conference where the guy goes, "Is this a joke?" <laughs> yes couldn't do the um grudge match scene it's kevin hart that's like no this ain't a joke right <laughs> yeah yeah i don't give a shit about the money brendan i told you that i end up cashing in your life insurance policy before we pick up that prize money so it comes to where brendan has to tell tess that you know he's going to be entering this tournament this scene in particular so much born cam i mean the the fights and stuff like that i get the idea of like your camera kind of shaking around this is something that i don't miss this was so like this is just mandatory at the time but alex don't you get it this is also a fight <laughs> it's just as violent as the fights he has in Boo. the cage <laughs> <laughs> i don't miss the born cam I would prefer it to green screen and superhero movies. So if we can bring the born cam back, that'd be cool. But I was watching this here. I was like, oh, man, I forgot like every movie at this point did this. And I, I don't miss it. You know, Tess tells him, he's like, I'm not stupid. I watched the TV. I saw these guys you're fighting. They're going to kill you. And he's just like, no, it'll be all right. It's OK, baby. It's become that kind of movie now. I'll exactly. <laughs> and then she's just like, OK. <laughs> Sparta. She, she she draws a hard line, Alex. She's like, I'm not going to watch them. Then. And he's like, all right, bye. Yes. Yes. And to flash forward to that, to make it way more dignified, she's doing laundry while <laughs> the fight's happening instead of watching it. Sparta weekend has arrived in Atlantic City. I, I love how they try to like glamorize Atlantic City. That's how broke this movie was. They couldn't even go to Vegas for it. Uh, <laughs> Everyone's arriving. The brothers lock eyes in the lobby. It's a very tense moment. You know, there's excitement in the air, but there's obviously this personal animosity that is going to have to be addressed one way or the other. Uh, This is where we learn the extent of what Tommy did in the Marines, where there was a tank that was sinking. He came, ripped the back door off, helped all these men escape. It's one of them that comes forward, but he says, you know, he saved the lives of many men that night. And, you know, he's a war hero. 
he sees this on the news, you know, uh, pop Nick Nolte shows it to him and he, you know, he can't handle it. He gets upset by it, takes off on a walk. This is where he comes across Brennan. They're the only other people on the beach. They just, they see each other from at least a hundred yards away. One of them could have changed direction if they really <laughs> didn't want to see each other. They go up and they have a conversation that quickly turns volatile about Tommy blaming Brendan for you know leaving him. Brendan bl- blaming Tommy for not letting him know that his mom was sick. Tommy's argument's so weak too. He's just like, I get it. You chose some girl. And he's like, I'm married to her with two kids. <laughs> Why do I care? Do I know you? Are you my brother? <laughs> he tells him like, why am I looking at pictures of people I don't know? It's, <laughs> he's such an asshole. This conversation, this is another one that goes on forever. And it's just watching two dudes being dudes and speaking in circles. It's like, just hug it out or have the fight right here in the beach. Just stop stalling. It's there's- so clear that Tommy has so much baggage that he just won't let go of. It's like pushing him to the ground. Like every time that Tom Hardy moves. That's like, why he's so hunched over. Yep. Is because he has so much baggage that he's carrying. Jill Edgerton should just like, cut the shit and go in for the for the hug. Would have saved us 30 minutes of movie. Can you imagine if the movie ended like that? <laughs> it's just, it's uh, the Goodwill hunting ending. Like Edgerton just hugs him and says, like, it's not your fault. It's not your fault, Tommy. It's not your fault. Fades to black and then white text, warrior. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Nolte sings us out the end credits. <laughs> his cover of the Ode of Joy. His cover of uh, shooting at the walls of heartache. <laughs> yeah, Tommy's got a lot of baggage, man. But we go back to uh, Philadelphia where the students of Mr. C, Mr. Conlin, are trying to rally for them to show the pay-per-view of the fight in the school auditorium, you know, like we'll have everyone come watch it. We'll use it as a fundraiser. And Kevin Dunn completely in the rights, just like, are you fucking stupid? <laughs> he tells these kids like, I need to speak to your parents. Cause you need to come to summer school. You want us to do this for a suspended teacher so we can watch the activity he got suspended <laughs> for in a chilling, depressing thing. That was just like, this is to come. The students decide that they're going to make a petition. It's like, what if we get everybody to sign? And that's when change.org was born. Yeah, it's like a day, too. How many people, how many signatures do they think they're going to get in 12 hours or whatever they need it by? I don't know. I was in high school once. I was Power young. Twitter. Idealistic. You get the right person to retweet that. I had hope once. <laughs> so Kevin Dunn, again, rightly is like, get the fuck out of my office. No. <laughs> But I will come to your watch party. So let me know where you guys end up watching. (laughs) Drop me the address. Boardwalk Hall. The historic Boardwalk Hall is the site of the Sparta two-night tournament. Brian Callen is your color analyst. I forget who they have having the play-by-play guy. So there's two Uh, guys. Yeah. One is the one that likes Joel Edgerton, and the other one is the one that compares him to a fish. That's Brian Callen. Okay. Brian Callen is a stand-up comedian who, in this movie, is to an nth degree doing a caricature of what Joe Rogan's UFC commentator persona is like. So, making jokes and and writing off fighters and making really you know declarative statements about what's going to happen. That that's not something that Joe Rogan typically does, but you know it's that's the immediate comparison that people are drawn to. Joe Rogan doesn't bring. Um, props with him to his commentating gigs <laughs> Joe Rogan takes MMA seriously 
as proven uh, by his appearance in Here Comes the Boom. Very much so. Sam Sheridan was the other guy. But they're the announcers for this Sparta tournament. It's uh, what I think they say, 16 men, two nights. Tommy Reardon's first out of the gate. His traps, this I, that's what my notes say. Tommy's traps, Jesus. He just is gigantic. Because this is the first time in the movie we see him with a shirt off. And he's got all the telltale tattoos of what the stereotypical uh, MMA fighter would have had at that point in time. And, I mean, still to this day. But uh, he gets a quick knockout. He flatlines this dude. Just, you know, stretches him out. This is and not how it's supposed to go. You're supposed to I put mean, on a show, Tommy. I was going to say, Conor McGregor became like an all-time legend and star because he won a, his big title fight by knockout in 13 seconds. So it's definitely a way to get someone over. Uh, but yeah, he does the thing like he storms out of the cage, which I think you get fined if you do that in real life because you're supposed to stay in. Make sure you didn't kill the guy. Well, yeah, make sure they don't have to take you out in handcuffs. But <laughs> the, I figure the thing is that they had because it's also like I think you can get fined if your corner hops the cage and like runs in after a fight. You have to wait until the doors are open before anyone else can come in or go out. And I forget what the actual rules are, but I've heard of guys getting fined for doing what Tommy did here, where he jets out of the cage. And also the things they say, like he refuses to do interviews. He won't have his picture taken for any of the press material. It's like, no, if he signed a contract to fight there, he would have to do that shit. Even Brock Lesnar had to do that. And it was very limited because the way his contract worked out. He's a rebel, <laughs> Alex. He's a <laughs> bad boy. My notes said Callan brought a goddamn goldfish <laughs> <laughs> to make a point that Joel Edgerton here, Brennan Conlon, is going to be a goldfish dropped into a shark tank. So. Ha 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 ha. You gotta you gotta do what you can to lighten up the proceedings here because it's getting fucking grim. Did you think I mean I know you've seen this more than once, but the first time you were watching it, did you think that uh Nick Nolte wasn't gonna make it to the end? I think the first time I watched it I thought something like that of like You know, that really morbid shot of Tom Hardy walking into the hotel room and you just see Nolte's legs like swinging. Jesus, I didn't think he was going to kill himself. <laughs> but okay, thought, what else do you think was going to happen? I don't know. Relapse is hard. I mean, it's Atlantic City after all. And I mean, he ends up doing that to a certain extent. But, you know, uh, I thought that Joel Egerton was going to wake up in bed and Tom Hardy was going to be standing over his bed saying, Dad won't wake up. <laughs> Jesus. Somehow that's more disturbing. But Oh, it's okay when Abigail Braslin does it as a little kid, I guess. <laughs> I'm proud of you, Tom. What you did for that kid in the tank. That was really something. So anyway, in Brendan's first fight, he fights Midnight Lee, Orlando Midnight Black Lee, as he's known, played by former UFC title challenger Anthony Rumble Johnson, who, man, that guy, his record isn't the most impressive thing you've seen, especially when you look at some of the people he lost to. But, like like Joel Edgerton. Well, they said Edgerton was a 500 fighter, so like that means he like alternated wins and losses. Anthony Rumble Johnson lost six fights to a good crop of guys, but he is always going to be one of the great what ifs if he like took fighting seriously, because the knockout power that dude possessed remains unlike anything I have ever seen. He just like touched dudes and they would just go flying or out and i don't mean like dropped him and then finished him like unconscious for minutes 
I was at a fight of his when he fought Glover to share and he knocked him out in 13 seconds with an uppercut and Glover's just like stretched out. His power was insane. The problem was he wasn't very disciplined. He missed weight a lot. And when he was losing fights and he saw a way out, he typically took it. Again, this guy could beat the shit out of me. I'm just like speaking to what his legacy as a fighter kind of will go down as. Like Alex, but- all I can speak to is what I saw in the movie. And Joel Edgerton, this this physics teacher in his 40s, made him look like an idiot. Edgerton was doing the, the I guess, Big Nog, Charles Oliveira, some of those guys. That, Chris Lieben is another one. Like, just, hey, I'll just let this guy beat the shit out of me for a couple rounds, and then I'll come back and win it. Start him out. Which, of course, is not the, the best thing for, yeah, that's the Homer Simpson strategy. He'll get tired <laughs> eventually. <laughs> it's not the best thing for career longevity, but fuck it. I've only got to fight three times and I'll win $5 million. So <laughs> Rumble beats the shit out of him. Uh, he ends up tapping him with a Kimura, I believe. And, you know, Brian Callen's immediately dismissive of it. He's like, well, he got him, but that was a fluke. We get a, a good shot of Kevin Dunn watching at home on his couch, you know, like just <laughs> shouting superfluous instruction at the screen. Uh, it's intercut with uh, what you said, Jennifer Morrison doing laundry, cooking dinner. Dignified. <laughs> Dignified. At this point, we're introduced to the fighting styles of the odds-on favorite to win this tournament. He's been mentioned a few times throughout it, but Koba, the the Russian beast, has come to America for this tournament. Blatantly a play off of Fedor Emelianenko, who for 10 years was you know, the most feared man in all of fighting, a Russian, his name's Fedor Emelianenko. So I think you could deduce that, but, uh, went just by Fedor. So he was known by, they try to do it a little differently in this. And he's just really intense and really jacked. And Koba is Fedor had like a belly and he always just looked like really bored and he never really made eye contact with any of his opponents, but like bell rang, Man, you watch Prime Fedor, like when he fought fucking Gary Goodridge. What are some of those other fights? Like when he fought Tim Sylvia, just a blitzkrieg, a just terrifying man, you know, and like with anybody, age came for him and he had a downfall. But man, there was like 2003, 2004. That guy was just fucking untouchable, terrifying. Still one of the scariest fighters I've ever seen. Uh, So they try to bring that feel to this. Uh, and he's played by Kurt Angle, who, of course, a legitimate Olympic gold medalist, won a gold medal in freestyle wrestling in 1996 in Atlanta, and then transitioned quickly into the world of professional wrestling um, and became one of the greatest pro wrestlers of all time. I think he was the first guy to win the WWF title with uh, after less than one year in the company. He won it in 2000. He beat The Rock for it. Uh, he's always said if MMA had been a more viable career path at that point in time, he probably would have gone down that route instead of pro wrestling. But you got to remember, in 1998-99, uh, pro wrestling was the hottest it's ever been, and MMA was struggling to find any in the United States. Uh, the UFC and MMA was struggling to find venues to run or you know pay-per-view to air on. So the choice was kind of easy for Kurt Angle, but funny to see this here of not only is he playing Fedor, but, you know, kind of living out his fantasy of being an MMA fighter. He in 2011, what was his status? Did he have enough clout to where he could say, 
can you not have me lose to Joel Edgerton? Can, can I be one of the guys that fights Tom Hardy? <laughs> he was working in TNA at the time. I just imagine Dixie Carter, whoever, I don't remember who was running TNA at that point in time, being like, uh-uh, our guy is not losing in this movie. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> like with the MMA fighters in this, and, you know, Kurt, I think Kurt thought he was going to get into acting at one point. I mean, I mean, let's be honest. There's a lot of those guys that think they can be the rock and you know john cena is obviously well on his way and even batista to you know he's gone kind of a different path but that's three examples in hundreds and hundreds of wrestlers over the past several decades so i think kurt may have thought this was gonna like open some doors i don't know kurt's a funny dude too it's a shame he the movie (laughs) roles he did take were like predominantly big macho ah tough guy I was gonna say that he didn't get any zingers in this one. Other no, he doesn't. Than whenever uh, Egerton, you know, put him down. <laughs> yes, his shit though. His fights are the most ridiculous, laughable stuff in this movie. So the clip they show the first fight he wins, which involves neither of the Conlon brothers, he power bombs this guy, and I don't mean like Rampage Jackson style. You're in a triangle choke and you slam your way out of it. He does a pro wrestling power bomb where the <laughs> other guy has to work with you to do the move properly. <laughs> and this knocks the guy out. It's fucking absurd. And then when he eventually fights Edgerton, he's doing like overhead belly to belly suplexes into the cage and you know, throw it. They're the effects that there had to be wire work in it with the way these guys go flying. And there's been some impressive slams and suplexes in the world of mixed martial arts, believe you me, but nothing to this comical extent. So do you think it would have been more interesting if Tom, I mean, all kidding aside, uh, if Tom Hardy had been the one fighting this guy? Yes. Like from my perspective of like booking it like a fight or something or booking. Finally, somebody that he can't just knock out with one punch. Because then, yeah, he had his second round fight. He has a rematch with Mad Dog and, uh, beats the shit out of him once again he just he blitzes through his field of fighters because brendan has to go on and also fight the dane carl the dane kruller who's played by nate marquardt in this film former ufc title challenger former strike force welterweight champion was a good fighter in his day but he gets jobbed out here too he gets to tap out <laughs> maybe that's the reason marquardt and rumble johnson had fake names because i'm pretty sure they both were in ufc fighters at the time they're like no, our property's not losing in these movies, man. They're going to have to have fictional identities. No one will know who they are. Which leads to, as we mentioned, the fight between Koba and Joel Edgerton, which again is just not good for his elongated health where he gets the shit beat out of him for, well, I don't know, 14 minutes of a 15-minute fight. This is uh, the most cliche out of all the sports cliches because by now Jennifer Morrison has swallowed her pride and has come to watch the fight. And so, yeah. <laughs> so it's the fact that she's there in the audience that gives him the power to finally beat the Russian. Like, it's, it's and, and I'm not going to say that like it's not doable. I've never seen a knee bar pulled off the way he does it, where he like hooks his hands behind his back. Typically, in any sort of fight, you want to keep your hands somewhat around your chest so you can protect your face if need be. I don't know. Again, I've never seen that technique used in jujitsu, but it works because he taps out. Usually you want to hook the foot like kind of in your chest and then 
where their knee would be at your crotch and then kind of thrust forward so it hyperextends their knee. But whatever he does, he figures it out and he taps out the big fucker. This is the second night we did move past. We need to go back to, I mean, the big Oscar scene in which, you know, Tom Hardy's having a hard time and he's playing some early morning slots, as one does. Pop comes down and tries to talk to him about, you know, the thing with the uh, situation in the military and, you know, what's going on. And he's honestly just trying to help him. And um, this seems frustrating because more than anything else in the movie, you can tell Nick Nolte is being genuine here in his attempt to help. And of course, Tom Hardy's just a total man about it. And like, I don't need to talk about anything. Why don't you go fuck off? You like, suck, you? not me. Yeah. The whole thing of like, you're the one with the problem, not me. And he tells him to fuck off, and he throws a bunch of quarters in his face. And it's really sad. Nick Nolte walks away like that stray pup again, and then he relapses because we find him, you know, at the break of dawn in his hotel room, listening to Moby Dick or something on his cassettes, and drunk as fuck, crying about it. This is the Tom. moment that he wins the Oscar. If he had won the Oscar, at least this is the moment that he gets the Oscar nomination. Uh, yes. Whether they use it as his Oscar clip or not, this is where you know you unlock the formula. You know, there are some things that are very likely to get you attention from the academy. Old white dude playing a drunkard, that's that just tickles their funny bone. That's that's really mm-hmm. what they want. So uh, good for Nolte, I guess. You know, he he'd been doing this for a while, so it was it was overdue. Stop the ship! You godless son of a bitch! You stop the ship! You godless son of a bitch! Now, the big question is, do you feel like Tom Hardy's reaction when he finds him drunk and basically cradles him into bed, like, does that make up for how shitty he's been through the entire movie? How Tom Hardy has been? Right? Because the, the, the movie... We're heading towards a climax where Tom Hardy is going to fight Joel Egerton. Like, the two brothers are going to fight. And ideally, you'll want to pull for both of them. That's the, you know, you you want both of them to win, but you know that one of them is going to have to lose. But it's hard to root for Hardy when he's been such a dick and caused his father, who has been sober for over a thousand uh, days, to relapse. Yeah, the scene's really sad. And Tom Hardy, it really, uh, unless he's just completely burying all of his emotions, it he doesn't seem to really feel sorry for what he's done. So he just kind of coddles him to sleep and <laughs> then goes off to fight. Yeah. Then heads back to the boardwalk hall to do his business. The extent of the story comes out, though, in that his buddy Manny, it's its broken into on CNN. His buddy Manny in the military was killed by friendly fire. And everyone that was with them was killed except for Tommy. They said they you know, tried to signal that they were Americans, but it wasn't to be. And again, that along with the teacher pay and insurance and just the way everything else uh, that America's portrayed in this, that definitely puts it over the top. It's it's really heartbreaking. But after that, it, you know, understandably so, Tommy went AWOL. And that's why he's been going by Reardon, so they can't find, you know, Conlon and his military records. But the military and, finally figured out how to use Google so yeah. they found them right on the on the night of the big fight. This is okay, this is the biggest leap. Or, or, am I wrong? They decide to wait until after the fight to arrest him. Yeah. That I mean that's movie writing 101 right there. They after didn't the watch fight, it, so like they wanted to see how it turned out. Despite if he wins or loses, he will be handed over to military custody. That's pro wrestling, man. That's what that is. <laughs> it should have been like real pro wrestling. If he wins, he doesn't have to go to prison. But it, <laughs> 
But so, if he loses, they kill Manny's wife. Jesus. <laughs> they have her on the phone just like, this is up to you. But through this, the realization comes out that they're brothers and everyone's like aghast. Like, what? Kevin Dunn's reaction is the best. <laughs> Because, yes, at back in Philadelphia at one of the local drive-ins, they're hosting a viewing of it, which that would be really fun to do. But, yeah, they're all, like, eating hot dogs and popcorn, and then, you know, their mouths are agape, like, what? Can you believe this? What are the odds? Two brothers fighting at the Grand Prix final. It's like it was written this way. <laughs> and did you know their father's a drunk and he relapsed <laughs> the night before the big fight? And in a bit of like very unintentional comedy, Nick Nolte comes running out of the hotel, putting like he's still putting his clothes on, grabbing a cab. It's like he slept it off. He woke up and looked at the <laughs> the digital clock in the hotel room like, oh, fuck. <laughs> so he makes it in time. It's the main event against his better judgment. Joel Egerton's in there fighting. Um, this is where, though, like his strategy from the previous fights works in the sense of Tommy's just a tornado and you know Brendan's blocking everything those other fights he was legitimately just getting the shit beat out of him and this he's just kind of like you know Tommy's not going to let up but it's a five round fight because it's you know for all the marbles so eventually you know he'll let his guard down and despite late shots after the bell and you know not breaking when the ref says break eventually he does slip up and he gets caught in what's called an omoplata, which is like a shoulder lock. It affects your shoulder and your arm. It's that movie he had where he had his legs wrapped around and like um, he flipped him over to where Tommy was on all fours and Joel Edgerton was like kind of on top of him with his arm compromised. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I yeah, remember yeah. the sound. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I mean, that, that's what would happen if you're locked deep in an omoplata. It's a, a difficult move to pull off in modern MMA because that's kind of like a day one type defense but he won't tab so he just leans all the way forward and breaks his arm or separates his shoulder or both and i mean it's fitting timing coming off that ufc event the other night where tj dillashaw had to have his shoulder pop back in like numerous times uh, but with this he's got no cornerman so no one can pop his shoulder back in and even then i can't believe they let that dillashaw fight go on as long as they did there was a guy named aaron pico recently who got his shoulder separated in his corner like in between fights are just like yanking and pulling and trying to get it back in. And the doctor came in and is like, no, no, (laughs) this is over. There's none of that here. In fact, uh, this is, I don't think this is what they meant, but this is my favorite part of the movie when Joel Edgerton is just horrified by the way he's done. And he goes back to his corner and he tells Frank Grillo, it's like, we need to stop. I, I, I popped his shoulder and Frank Grillo just reveals his true colors. He's been all Zen the entire time. And now he's just bloodthirsty. He goes, good. Sweep the leg next. He says, pop his other shoulder. That was shades of um, Greg Jackson when he cornered George St. Pierre at UFC 100. George was fighting, I believe it was Tiago Alves. And, uh, you know, George was a grapple heavy guy and he tore his groin like halfway through the fight. And he came back and. He told Greg Jackson, his coach, he's like, I tore my groin. And you can hear Greg Jackson on like the the certain camera angle goes, I don't care. Hit him with your groin. Like he's, you know, just like trying to be a man, that type of thing. And of course, George went on to win that fight. The more vicious part is Brendan tries to get the attention of uh, Josh Rosenthal, the referee, and say, you know, tell him what's up. And Frank's like, no, fuck that. We're going to kill this motherfucker. It's a really weird setup because you think that... 
the movie is getting us ready for a big moment where Joel Egerton realizes that the most important thing in the world is his brother's health. It's like, we'll figure out everything else, but right now, I, I've hurt my brother really badly. He's, you know, physically, and he's already been hurting emotionally. What I need to do now to start making things right is not fight him anymore. This is the moment where he should have hugged him, right? But instead... No, there's $5 million on the line. <laughs> yes. So I'm going to beat the shit out of him. <laughs> I'm and not he... even going to run out the clock. <laughs> I'm just going to viciously punch him and kick him until he's done. It's really funny, though, because uh, Frank Grillo just being like, th- that's why these fuckers are coaches. And that's the same thing in MMA and boxing today. They know exactly what they're talking about. He like tells him earlier. He's like, all right, you're going to fake to the right and then head kick him. He says something like that. And that's what it ends up taking to like pretty much finish him. So uh, about today by the national starts to come in and then all the sound of the event begins to fade out. Brendan comes out. He, you know, Tommy just a literal wounded animal he's on the verge of tears and uh do it brendan Brendan comes out and tries to give him a last chance because you know you can just take a knee and tap and he doesn't do it so he drills him with a head kick takes his back sinks in a rear naked choke you know we get some dialogue here begins talking to him telling him you know he's sorry about everything and that it's okay and he's urging him to tap he does you know, he chooses not to go to sleep. And I think the implication is at this point, he kind of is letting go of everything. And we see Nick Nolte now <laughs> running <he's>, into the thing. <laughs> what I miss. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nick Nolte has to give him the like the Joaquin Phoenix and Gladiator thumbs down. Because remember, <laughs> like he turns to him and Nick Nolte just like gives him the one head shake, like do it, you know. You have to finish this. (laughs) He taps him out and then it becomes a scene of, you know, these doctors are running in and, but Brendan just cares about his brother and wants to make sure he's okay. So helps him up and begins helping him to the back. We get Nick Nolte smiling and shedding a tear at his two boys, man, go get your $5 million. Like put, sit your brother down and then go ask JJ Riley. Where's my check? The camera, we, we, we cut to black. The camera zooms into uh, Tom Hardy's armpit. And then we fade to black before we see him getting handcuffed and taken away by the U.S. military. But he could sneak out now because his arm's dislocated. He could, like, pull oh. it out of the handcuffs. <laughs> no, it was a missed opportunity. We didn't get a big comedic check. I, I don't know if I've told you this before or said this on the podcast. It's, I think I talked about yep. the Here Comes the Boom episode because it fucking always kills me. The first UFC, for however much money it was for, 40 grand or whatever, the check in the memo line said for being the best, the reason. So, like, I want Joel Edgerton holding up a big check that, like, <laughs> for being Sparta or whatever the reason was. <laughs> but that was Warrior. Um, no... For those who are curious, that's not typically how a mixed martial arts pay-per-view goes. It's not that emotional? Well, I mean, it depends on the fight, but they're not going to help the guy up and take him out into the waiting arms of the military authorities. (laughs) But is it as bloodthirsty as what we see from the crowd here? Because everybody everybody knows that they're brothers. And they may not know the full story about 
you know, they don't know that Nick Nolte just relapsed and they don't know about the mom, but they have to know that there's obviously some tension. And so it reminded me of the ending of uh, Independence Day when Randy Quaid just sacrifices himself and everybody cheers. And it felt a little bit like that, where we just saw one brother beat the shit out of the other brother and everybody's like, this is awesome. I'm like, no, these are really troubled individuals. I've given up on going to these fights. You know, I think it's a great sport and i think boxing in particular is just can be beautiful mma can be too but not on the same level as boxing and the drama that's there the idea of like i always think of gennady golovkin and canelo alvarez like as a modern example of like these two guys from completely different posts of the world who were raised in poverty like troubled families come to you know find boxing and it saves them and that their lives lead them to fighting one another in las vegas you know this is like what their lives have built to and no matter the amount of money on the line their will and their heart can't be compromised they're not going to back down and they're going to come with the skills that they've acquired over the course of their life to show the other one that they are the better man and i find something so beautiful in that um the people who go to these do not. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> the people who go to these events are like, hit him. So like the whole idea of this is, you know, I've gone to MMA events. The first few I went to as a younger man. I was like, God, this is just, it's so amazing. You know, we're watching these premier athletes do this thing and no one cares. They're, they're, they're people fighting in a cage people. And like it's boxing, MMA wrestling is where it's different because like they've diluted their audience down to just people that think similarly so you go there and <laughs> like you all kind of react to the same shit or some shit you don't like but other people do so you get into arguments about like the performance aspect mma boxing combat sports like that are still still any of these you go to is going to be like at best a 70-30 split of 30% people who really know what they're talking about, really appreciate what's going on, and the other 70% came there to see blood. That one that happened at the Moody Center uh, a few months ago, that's all it was. Just local Austinites, hipsters and shit, they're like, oh man, these people are going to fight in a cage, let's go see it. (laughs) So yeah, if this exact same scenario happened in real life, there would be no tears in the audience, just people (laughs) screaming and throwing beer in the air, saying, kill him! Rip his heart out! (laughs) <laughs> now kill your father <laughs> yeah and, and, like the fight will be over and everyone turns now let's get the old drunk and then they just take <laughs> off after him <laughs> that's the thing i've given up on the idea that anyone will ever take it as beautifully as something as this movie does because no one no one gives a shit about that all right julio i think i got most of my like mma nerd knowledge uh, expunged in this first portion so the, the second half of this should be pretty much just all dominated by talk of the movie. A very, very cliched and standard sports movie. But was it executed well is the question that will lead us into the second half. So I'm ready if you are to move along to real talk. I am ready. Let's uh, cue the ode to Joey. Son. 